This podcast is brought to you by Switchboard, providing peer-driven support services for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and gender diverse, intersex, queer and asexual people, their families, allies and communities. Switchboard Victoria also has a dedicated queer, trans, intersex, people of colour program. You can find out more at switchboard.org.au. This podcast is proudly made with the support of the Victorian Government. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Wurundjeri and Bunurong elders past, present and future. We wish to extend this respect to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander queer community, sister girls and brother boys, whose stories have come before us and whose stories will continue to be told after us. Sovereignty was never ceded here. There's so much to say about this time. I don't know where to begin. My thoughts are that it was just a waste of time and money and it was an awful thing to live through. I felt betrayed on many fronts, from white LGBT folks campaigning and from no voter campaigns. I think the fact that we didn't have to go through it, it didn't have to be that way, was something tough to be struggling with. I live in the west side of Melbourne. Most of the council signs are in language for rubbish disposal, toilet signs, etc., But walking down the street, I'd see love conquers all and love is love everywhere. And it's like, what does that even mean? Do you even know where you are? Do you know that that makes no sense in my family's language? I remember a trans South Asian friend of mine telling me that they were on the train with a rainbow lanyard around their neck. A bunch of white queers came up to them and said, thanks for being such a great ally. My friend said, I'm not your ally. I'm part of the community and this is for me. They laughed at them and walked away. I think that's just so typical of that time, like being presumed homophobic above being queer if you're not white. Another thing that worried me was the way that white folks were talking about this time. This is one of the worst things the Australian government has ever done to a community. People are going to find out the results of their areas and find out by the results of whether their neighbours, their doctors, their butchers agree with their existence or not. And it's like, really? Really? The worst thing? Are you serious? This is very, very bad, but it's not a detention centre. It's not a prison cell. It's not a policy of assimilation. It's not the white Australia policy. It's not slavery, for fuck's sake. And in what world do you live where you need a survey to find out if your neighbour hates you? You need a poll to know if your doctor disagrees with you? Isn't that like Tuesday if you're a trans person, if you're a POC? Having your identity debated on daily on the media is absolutely traumatic. But seriously, that's every single day of the year for as long as this country's been occupying this land. If you're a Muslim, if you're a refugee or an asylum seeker, if you're an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person, like seriously, just turn on current affair. There wasn't the same support that I think white Australian families had to be better informed on the topic. No campaigners were more culturally competent with their tactics than yes campaigners, it seemed. I also think that there were massive things happening at that very point in time that were affecting people of colour in Australia, like serious human rights abuses of refugees and asylum seekers, escalating police brutality in Melbourne and ongoing deaths in custody. There were so many protests around these issues at that time, but it didn't seem like any of the folks leading the Yes campaign were interested in participating. 
it was sad seeing multiculturalism blamed for no votes when the results were being announced. Spring is a time of renewal and growth. Everything is alive again. And people are starting to wear their summer clothes. But for me, it's almost impossible to go outside. I think about going to the State Library Victoria to hear the results of the marriage postal survey. But the plane trees along Swanston Street are unbearable for my allergies. I also can't stand large crowds. On the 5th of November 2017, millions of people across Australia anticipated to hear the results of the marriage postal survey. While people gathered in places like the State Library Victoria, I laid alone on my couch, feeling a twist in my stomach. I waited for the moment of tension to release. Would it be a yes or a no? And what did we go through to get here? My social feed was covered in a shower of glitter and rainbow flags. It was a yes, and Australia had won the vote for same-sex marriage by 61.6%. For one day, the State Library transformed from concrete and grass into a sea of rainbows. Wherever you were in Australia, or anywhere in the world, you wouldn't have missed this party. The party is where it all starts. But among the rainbow flags and glitter, where were all the queer people of colour? I search same-sex marriage Australia online, but all the photos I find are of white people covered in rainbows and signs that read, equal love now. And while I occasionally spot a person of colour in the crowd, I wonder where do our stories fit in among the rainbow narratives of pride and marriage? And do they need to fit in at all? Over the next four episodes of When Love Wins, we'll hear stories of queer people of colour who have generously shared with us their experience of not only the Australian Marriage Postal Survey, but also a decade of marriage equality campaigns leading up to the Yes Vote. While we got to speak with many people throughout the making of this podcast, in no way are these stories representative of all queer people of colour. I'm your host, Tan Hung Pham, and you're listening to When Love Wins, stories where queer people of colour share with us their lives during the Australian Marriage Postal Survey. Zakaria Shah came to Australia 10 years ago to study at university. But his trip here became more than just about his education and career. When he started uni, he eagerly found his way to the queer room on campus, which led him to his first queer party and his first rally for same-sex marriage. Hello, my name is Zakaria Shahrudin. I am a trans-Muslim person of colour. I've lived here um, in Melbourne for 10 years now. I think my relationship with the survey, I feel like, started when I came to Australia. So I remember coming to Australia, this sort of really enthusiastic small person, 
um, with hijab on with my family. Like my family actually came here with me to settle me into oh, the wow, house. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they actually my mum and dad came and helped me settle into my room in Clayton. Um, and I remember I met this guy, Chris, who I still know, was manning the queer section of the O week and because I was in my hijab and stuff like that and I was just like oh I, sh- I just want to oh yeah I didn't know you guys have a queer section you know like what what is it like and he was really really nice and he was really just like oh it's upstairs it's like opposite Whole Foods um just for context I went to Monash University so yeah I remember going upstairs and then just like going in and the next day I like I took my hijab off I decided not to wear it anymore and I just felt like this intense feel of like freedom my parents have gone home and now I like have this new life and I've been waiting for it for a long time so I've sort of kept a lot of part of me as a secret where I came from so that I've just been working lots at school and things like that to get really good grades in order to be able to like just leave and go overseas and I got like scholarships and things like that to make sure that I'm able to have like this kind of separate life from my home country and my family and then when I entered the queer room, I remember it, it was kind of empty and I was like, oh, where, where is everyone? Or like, is this the only queer people in the world? And I remember it was Rachel that was in there at the time. And yeah, she was like, oh, look, everyone's just outside doing the banners for a marriage equality campaign march. And I remember being like, wow, like this country, like anyone can be free it's not just you're free, you like also can get married and then, you know, the people are fighting, people are marching on the street, which isn't something that we do a lot um, where I come from. Um, the way that the activists work where I come from is vastly different. I remember just, you know, thinking that this is such a great environment for me to be in and I remember helping out because they were just like hey you know you're new here great do you want to pick up some paint like and I was like this is great and I looked forward to this much a lot I made these like new friends really quickly right like maybe 10 15 of them a group of predominantly gay and lesbian at the time predominantly white and I was like this is the life that I wanted you know I've always watched the L word pretty much I want to be white and in LA (laughs) 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 and this is like you know as close as I can be to that at this point I was super psyched and they're like you know we're gonna stay at like one of the mates home the night before because they live on Ligon Street and something like that and then it's very close to where the rally is but before that what we can do is we can go party so cut to that Friday we went to Alias or Blondes on the Rocks or something on the rocks. Um, maybe it's Alia on the Rocks. Alia on the Rocks. <laughs> Let's just combine the lesbian bars. Yeah, yeah. We went to Alia on the Rocks, um, just across from. Okay, Peel. no, no one call in. We've decided. Yeah, it's Alia yeah. On the rocks. <laughs> it's actually we're gonna start a new place. It's yeah. called Alia on the Rocks. Um, but it's like Alia, like spelled like Muslim way, like mm-hmm. not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like Alia, (laughs) and then I remember like walking into this place and just being so in awe of like this culture and being like, "Wow, this is exactly what it was like in the L word" or something like that. And but actually feeling like a little bit intimidated. I am a very short person, so, like, everyone else is, like, a giant towering over me. I soon find out that I'm actually not that 
comfortable with people being intoxicated around me. But, you know, in the, at the time I was like, I'm probably just not used to it. I'm just going to drink. And then I had like a terrible drink, like a cruiser. And then we had that nice kind of experience as we walked in. But then I was a smoker then and I kept going in and out. So the bouncers were just like kind of staring at me like as I was going back in, this guy, like I think the, a new bouncer came and was like, where's your ID? And I was like, oh, I, I'm already in, like I have this stamp, you know? And he's like, no, but where's your ID? And I was like, oh, yeah, here it is. And it was like my student card at the time because I didn't have like any other ID that could be used but my passport and I didn't want to carry my passport around. And then I gave him my driver's license from Malaysia and was just like, this is what my date of birth is. And then he's like, oh, nah, you can't go back in. I remember just feeling really, okay, yeah, don't worry about it. I don't want to go back in. And then I got one of my friends, Carmel, um, to go back in to let the people know that I've been kicked out or whatever. I don't think I was intoxicated, but I think I was like maybe just a little bit hyper at the point. But he's like, you're too drunk. You don't have ID. It was a lesbian bar, you know? Like, I don't know yeah. what he was. Yeah, it was... Yeah, probably racism. Anyway. Yep. Let's name it. I was like, it was what, racism. What, what was it? I don't even know. No. Um, and I got someone to like tell the others. And then this person came back out and was just like, oh, well, because we were going to stay at one of our house that night, because I couldn't go back to Clayton. It was too late. Yep. Um, they were just like, oh, well. Context for everyone. Clayton is very far yeah. from the city. Yeah, maybe like three or four. And bus and, yep. Yeah, different public transport. Mm. Very, very far away. And at that point also, we didn't really have nighttime like public transport. Oh, okay. um, and I think like after 10 o'clock, you wouldn't be able to go back to Clayton unless you took like a taxi which would have cost like $60 so I was like oh no what, what am I supposed to do my friend came out and was like oh they said that you know they're not going home now because I was like oh well you know what like I don't need to be in the bar like my mates and I are gonna go and then we're gonna go like and have continue this party at her house and then you know my mate came out and was like oh no they don't really want to leave yet and I was like, what does that mean? Like, do you want me to wait out here? And they're like, no, I think there'll be like a few hours still and you should just go. And I was like, where, where am I supposed to go? <laughs> hearing how the first time's devastating, yeah. but hearing the second time's just makes me angry. Yeah. I, like, I didn't understand if they understood where I was coming from. I don't know if they know that I'm new here. I mean, they do, definitely do, but they took that for granted probably. And... Nothing could bring me down because I was so excited, but I was still, yeah, it was probably my first experience of queer friendship. Like, mm. yeah, if it's if you're cool, then, like, you can be here, but if anything inconveniences us, there's no way that we're going to even come out to see you and let you know that we're not leaving yet. We're just going to continue dancing. So maybe you're wondering what happened to Zakaria after he got kicked out of the club. Did he end up going to the same-sex marriage rally the next day? While his friends continued partying inside the club, one fiercely loyal friend and one unexpected encounter would change his night. She was really kind. And then I went to her house and I was like, oh, I'm going to come out to you. And even then I didn't see how comfortable I was with someone from my home country versus somebody who wasn't. Because even then I was just like, oh, she probably wouldn't understand. And, and she really w 
was quite understanding in hindsight. She was the only one who looked after me and everyone else kind of bailed on me. So the next day I woke up and she was like, this is how you get to the march. This person who I thought was going to be really homophobic was just like, yeah, go to the march, whatever. And knew like, which march you were going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, mm. and I'm gay and, you know, don't tell my sister. And like, I can't tell me not to do it. And she was like, yeah, I'm not telling you to do it. Do you want to uh-huh. go to sleep? <laughs> she was quite chilled out. And, you know, I had this like rainbow flag in my back pocket and I was like super lost from like on straight because she was like, you could just walk there. But I was really still quite excited um, and I still felt quite, you know, enthusiastic about it. In terms of my first contact of that campaign, it's bittersweet sort of looking at back at it now, seeing how I wouldn't even say ignorant, but like innocent I was. And I was really full of hope. We didn't think it was going to take this long as well. Looking at the campaign now, I definitely don't feel that sense of open freedom like that I felt. I think the f- 10 years ago, it felt like it would have been like in the next couple of years it'll happen. And then it feels like every year there's like at least three or four March. And I just stopped going, you know, like I didn't go after the first two years. Um, Why did you stop going? I think the makeup of the campaign became so, for lack of better words right now, white and so weirdly angry. <laughs> and weirdly I think. angry. Okay, yeah. Can you describe that? <laughs> I don't know. As I kind of progress in living in this country, my experiences of racism, my experiences of black Islamophobia, visa that are precarious um, Mm. and not knowing whether or not I can stay in this country. Don't get me wrong, like I am so for marriage, you know, in fact, I am looking forward to getting married and I am engaged at the moment and I will be getting married. But with the struggles that I was experiencing, it just didn't feel like this was where the energy needed to be put. If you're a queer person of colour, a refugee, or your Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander. Does achieving equal rights to marry allow you to be equal in other ways? Does saying yes to same-sex marriage mean equal rights for all? I spoke with writers and curators Maddie Clark and Nika Lehman about what their exhibition Hitched taught them about the history of same-sex marriage in Australia. Hitched was held at the Wyndham Cultural Centre as part of Midsummer's 2019 festival program. I'm Maddie Clark. I'm a freelance writer and curator and sometimes editor. I teach uh, Indigenous writing at University of Melbourne and I'm Yugen Baron. I come from southeast Queensland. My name's Nika Lehman and I'm Trawoi from northeast Tasmania, which is Tebrakana country. I... Um, a freelance writer, sometimes editor with Maddie Clark, and sometimes curator with Maddie Clark, friend of Maddie Clark, uh, <laughs> and uh, teacher with Maddie Clark. <laughs> oh, yeah, we do all these things together. We do a lot of things together, yeah. Uh, sessional academic at the University of Melbourne. Mm. I love it, all the things. Yeah. <laughs> so, if you could please tell me about your exhibition, Hitch, that came out earlier this year in January as part of Midsummer's program. It was at uh, Wyndham Cultural Centre in Werribee. We were working with Marie Clark, Annie Marie Clark and Megan Evans, who are both like curating curators there and and also people that we've known from around the place, like as artists in their own right, artists and writers in their own right. 
um, and whose work we really respected. So they approached us and propositioned us to do a show about the one-year anniversary of the same-sex marriage uh, coming into law. So propositioned uh, us. Propos- they did. They propositioned mm-hmm. us. They were like, we've got. They pitched to us like we've got, and that's something that I think. I was not super used to. So, like, I guess when I've curated before, it's always been, like, you kind of get to do a little bit of the creative um, directorship of the of the idea. You know, you don't sort of have an idea given to you. Mm. Um, and so I was a little bit, like, at first a bit like, oh, if I had the choice, I probably wouldn't do a show about marriage specifically, especially mm. not same-sex marriage. But then it did sound like an interesting opportunity. Well, given a concept and a title and... Mm. Um, the title was initially same, which was again like initially just a bit mm. boring, but actually very provocative as well. Yeah, and the question being asked by them was like, what has changed or not changed since the decision? So, <clears throat> since same-sex marriage comes into law in the community um, and in the nation more broadly, like what, what, what is what has moved on and what has stayed the same? So, and they suggested that we change the name. From same, but initially they said we we like one word titles. But somebody within the gallery had raised um, an issue with the title same because they said there was a problematic association with the idea of same sex marriage, whereas some people had decided to call it marriage equality, mm. and said that the idea of same sex marriage might have been like trans exclusionary. And we didn't necessarily agree with the idea that the title same was problematic, but we also wanted to change it to something more interesting. I think. So we were trying to think about what other many terms that we use about marriage and that's kind of where we got hitched from because mm-hmm. I don't know, it's like a really colloquial term in the settler colonial nation state of Australia that has like many meanings we realised and one of the like origins of the colloquial term here refers to something on a horse Oh, could you explain that? What do you mean by on a horse? Hitched on the hitched to the wagon. Hitched to the wagon, hitched to the horse. It's like being coupled or fastened or connected or attached, tethered, binded, tied. So Tommy hitched the pony to his cart and that just felt like a good provocation for a show about state sanctioned coupledom. Mm, so how did you play out that provocation then? Well there I guess there's a couple of parts of it which make it interesting like anything that is straight away about equality is immediately suspicious (laughs) especially as like aboriginal first nations people um like you just have to look at the um citizenship that was granted to us in 1967 um and the assumptions that we're now equal citizens but like what does that actually do um, what benefits have we got from there, yeah. um, from that time? Yeah. Um, many, but also what has changed um, is a question that a lot of people are asking um, rhetorically. Mm. Yeah. So like the idea of um, becoming part of the nation um, and being granted the rights and responsibilities of a citizen um, in the referendum was in the back of my mind and then um, thinking about the colonial histories of um, protectionism and then assimilation and then recognition and then referendum for inclusion in the constitution 
Um, and then thinking about the Aboriginal response to marriage as a continuation, you know, in that context mm. almost. Um, so lots of people would draw the comparison between the push for constitutional recognition for Aboriginal people being wholly rejected by the community and then the um, Indigenous communities, like the Indigenous queer community, some sections of the Indigenous queer community's response to the marriage equality issue <clears throat> being like one of like embracing it um, and then sort of saying, oh, well, how is it different? Mm. Um you know, why push for recognition from the state in that way mm. if we're not prepared to accept it? And we recognise the detrimental effect of self de- self-determination of the recognition in the other sphere. My impression of the marriage, like the personal vote and the kind of result and then the legalisation of same-sex marriage itself, like, was that it was intended to be a great distraction um, from what was happening at Manus and Nauru at the time. Because um, I think there was, like... There was a lot of like political investment in like distracting and obfuscating what was happening um, for um, yeah like regional processing and offshore detention. Um, there's a lot of like potential embarrassment for the government at that time, and making same-sex marriage the hot topic really worked politically for them, and the community bought into that really strongly. Like they forgot all about what was happening for asylum seekers and. Um, that made me really frustrated and I think that a lot of people around me, politically conscious people, um, were aware of it as well and they still kind of invested energy and time into the celebrating and the debating because um, I couldn't help but not because that's the nature of like political manipulation, right? Like mm. everyone was personally invested and um, interested in the outcome uh, and thinking about the outcome and we're so used to not thinking about well, I guess people who are not in offshore detention are used to trying to put that out of their minds and trying to be numb to that political reality too. So it was an interesting time politically, for sure. I was out of the country from October through till mid-December, so I kind of missed everything um, in person. But being on social media, it was interesting. The celebration side of it was probably the most, like, well, remains the most prominent memory for me looking back at it and I think that's one of the themes that kind of came out accidentally is probably not the right word but um, completely un like initiated in our art show was that the way that many of the artists responded was not always like explicitly critical of what it means to be married I guess but it, it did have something to do with the the after effects of like what happens after the party mm-hmm. so we had a lot of detritus so two of our artists Hannah Quinlan and Rosie Hastings who are a UK duo queer duo they did a video of a deserted beach scene after an American pride march and marriage equality debate march as well I think and you know, the scene is just kind of basically the rubbish, the trash, as you can imagine, on a beach after there's been some kind of rainbow flag glittery event. And we had another artist as well who's had a very, very beautiful work, um, Andrew Atkinson, and part of his work was sitting low on the ground on plinths and featured some dried mandarin skins that he'd crafted, looking like stars a little bit. You look at his work and it's exceptionally beautiful, but when we're walking through the show later, we're kind of looking and going, well, here's all the kind of remnants of of humans being, but also celebrating, you know, the kind of, it looked almost like what happens after a party. Mm. And 
that left a kind of eerie air, a bit of a spooky air. Mm. Yeah, something another interviewee talked about was how um, uh, even a year and a half on, they still see remnants of the marriage postal survey from the yes signs to a yes badge or um, even signs now where I think I saw one the other day where it was like vodka promoting like um, equal love and... You know, so there are these remnants of like capitalism and um, absolutely washing. Yeah, we didn't mention that c word, but that was definitely, definitely there. Um, and that just totally reminds me also about um, the wonderful um, uh, support that we had by the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archive, who um, allowed us to go through some of their collections and yeah, look look at more overtly political. Um, banners and posters that they have in their collection, which is amazing. Looking at the debate over time, yeah. that's what that's what we, we went in there with the intention to yeah. do was like, how can we have material evidence of this conversation over a long period of time? But what so we anti marriage conversation, the anti yeah yeah like, like the anti marriage voices within the queer community. That's right, yeah. the anti marriage voices. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but that's what you looked at specifically. Well, that's what we thought we might come across, and we did find some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, was this over a ten year period, or was it just for the year of the postal service? No, we wanted it like we wanted to know about it in the past, like especially like and to sort of be able to, if we could trace a connection between what the queers in the in you know the in the Australian community might have been saying against marriage even like from as early as we could almost like mm, okay. into the present like as soon as the as soon as the pro marriage debate begins but what we came out with um as well as like a great collection of badges and t-shirts mm. and zines and, and zines yeah. as well was things like boxes of rainbow colored absolute vodka bottles mm. um, that had been purchased from Darlinghurst. And craft beer. Cans. Craft beer, like local. Um, was this more recent? Yeah. This yeah. Was within, this was from the specific period of the campaign, so the Yes campaign. Wow. Um, he, lots of craft beer, rainbow, rainbow beer cans, and, yeah, absolute obviously got their eye in because they always have had an investment mm. in the pride aesthetic. So what do you think that says about... I guess the marriage postal survey and how it was carried out. I guess it ties into the general commercialization of activism that you kind of kind of see. You know when um, anarchist and squatting symbols became really popular with craft beer companies as well, and even Rexona had that verging on Marxist aesthetic deodorant um, and links I'll have to, to find to. that ad. <laughs> <laughs> you see them every now and again, and there was a beer. There was a beer that was like in a. They came in individually wrapped, um, and you bought them pack, individually wrapped paper bags with the squatter symbol on it. You know, the, so the squatters have like a, you know, like a symbol that's mm. like a little N in a circle, mm. the circle A kind of, but mm. a little bit different. And it would be printed onto the bags, and you could buy the six pack carried out of the liquor store, and you have this like squatter beer. So it kind of fell into that for me a little bit where, like, the aesthetics of activist movements becomes totally. brandy. I mean, whatever whatever capitalism can mm. can find a way to promote for their own advantages at will, you and know. because there's the pre-existing context of capitalism having an investment in pride anyway, um, mm. you know, so the banks and the cops and the, the corporations um, getting into the kind of fashionable gay aesthetic and the pinkwashing stuff, there's already, the, already that pre-existing context of exploitation and... Um, the community kind of complicitly accepting it. So is it like now that we have same gender marriage, mm. is it still exploitation or? 
I guess it's not a hot topic anymore. People are like Aww. the marriage is, you know, the marriage equality has happened. It's finished. Like, yeah, I don't know, but I haven't. Yeah. But the remnants still live on. Yeah, and they're in the archive. Thank God. They're in the archive. But they're, they're in still the gutters. On the yeah, they're in the gutters. <laughs> they're in the gutters. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're in the sewers. <laughs> <laughs> The party is over, but almost two years on from the postal survey, we still find remnants of the yes vote here and there. The rainbow flags, yes badges and t-shirts that remind us of our wins and our losses. Australia won same-sex marriage, but who got to celebrate this win and who was left out of the celebration? Coming up on our next episode... We'll look at how the same-sex marriage rallies shaped queer activism and identity in our episode, The Rally. I'm Tan Hung Pham, and you've been listening to When Love Wins, stories where queer people of colour share with us their experience of the Australian Marriage Postal Survey. When Love Wins is a podcast produced by Switchboard and funded by the Victorian State Government. Switchboard Victoria provides peer-driven support services for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and gender diverse, intersex, queer and asexual people, their families, allies and communities. Our host and producer was Tan Hung Pham and our project coordinator was Caroline Riddler. In November 2018, Switchboard put out a survey to hear from queer people of colour about their experience of the Australian Marriage Postal Survey. The results were read aloud on this podcast by Rebecca Robertson and Shamita Siva. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been produced by Switchboard with the support of the Victorian Government. To find out more, visit switchboard.org.au.